Hello, hello. Welcome to High Route. I'm your host, Mina, and today we're going to be talking about celebrity relationships. Specifically, this is a extended version of the video that I just posted on Monday, but we're going to dive a little bit deeper. And the reason this video, this episode, even came about was because of all the Taylor Swift, Maddie Healy drama that was happening last month. And yeah, I referred to him as Matt Healy in my video, like Matt without a Y, because one, I don't talk about him enough to like have cemented the idea that his name is actually Maddie in my brain. But also two, it's like, why are you as a grown man named Maddie? Why? So whatever. For this episode, I will be trying to refer to him as Maddie. I'm doing, I'm bringing all my brain cells together to refer to him as Maddie. And if you don't know about this drama, consider yourself blessed and about to ruin that by telling you all about it but basically what was happening is taylor swift had this little romantic rendezvous with maddie healy that was confirmed it wasn't just a rumor and people were really against this because maddie is someone who is a very controversial figure he said a lot of crazy things he's done a lot of crazy things some of which include kissing fans on stage and mocking ice spice for her body and her race this is like all recent stuff by the way this is like not like we're digging back into the trenches of 2012 to pull up receipts like he has been making provocative racist statements just for the fun of it as of this year and so when taylor started dating him people were like what the hell like why are you with someone who has been saying these things do you approve of these things That's led a lot of her fans to spiral into this idea that maybe Taylor Swift is not as morally good as she so presents herself to be. I don't know. Me personally, I like Taylor Swift's music, but I'm also like in that phase of my life where I don't have high expectations for any celebrity. I think that when you're surrounded by money and fans who adore you and who never like fully check you in a way that your career is at a detriment it's just the perfect formula for creating a terrible person (laughs) and I'm not saying that Taylor is a terrible person but I think that when I was at her Eras tour concert I was like there are about 80,000 people here it feels like in the stadium in this arena stadium and they're all shouting and screaming for you and you're constantly doing this then there's no way you don't have an ego of some sort and I feel like whenever you have an ego of some sort it leads you to do some questionable things but anyway the Maddie Taylor ship has sailed thankfully um and you know people are a little divided on whether or not that was like a PR thing that she broke up with him because she didn't want to get into another scandal or if there was some personal reason why they couldn't make it work but either way they're not together anymore And how this benefits me is that I'm using their relationship as a springboard to have this like larger conversation about celebrity relationships to begin with and why so many people are so invested in them. For this episode, I also have people writing in and the question that I asked on my Instagram stories was, what is your least favorite celebrity couple? I got some people who wrote in their most favorite celebrity couples, which I didn't ask, but I thought that was like really fun and interesting to read anyway. So I'm featuring one of those just to lighten the mood a little bit more. (laughs) And then of course we have an interview at the end of the episode. So without further ado, let's get into it.
This is a written response I received. In my opinion, the worst celeb couples are the ones where the younger partner was met whilst they were a minor. A few sticking out to me are Cheryl Cole and Liam Payne. I believe they met when he was 14 on The X Factor or Aaron Taylor Johnson and his ex question mark wife. That being said, I don't think age gaps themselves are necessarily the issue. I remember Florence Pugh received hate from dating Zach Braff, which personally I think is more than okay as I believe both members were above 18 when they met. Yeah, I got a lot of um, Aaron Taylor Johnson and Sam Taylor Johnson submissions. I've always thought this couple was really gross um, because if any of you don't know, they started dating when Aaron was 18 and Sam was 42 and they met on the set of Nowhere Boy, which is this movie about John Lennon. And he was starring as John Lennon and she was the director of the film. So... Yeah, it's just like, it really makes me queasy, I'm not going to lie. And it was especially weird because Sam had two daughters from a previous marriage. And one of them is only seven years younger than Aaron Johnson, Aaron Taylor Johnson. So it's really icky. There's just a lot of grooming relationships in Hollywood or a lot of like severe age gap relationships in Hollywood. And they all make me feel sick to my stomach. I think with like Florence Pugh and Zach Braff, like even though I thought it was a little weird, I do remember talking to my (laughs) physical therapist about it because I had a physical therapist who was like so funny and we would always talk about celebrity gossip. But she was like, yeah, honestly, I feel like they were more okay because Florence Pugh had already established herself as this, you know, actress who was up and coming and getting a lot of roles and... She was arguably a bigger star than Zach Braff at this point when they started dating. And a lot of the times with these like age gap Hollywood relationships, it's more of a red flag when the older person also is, you know, higher up in the Hollywood hierarchy because then there's not only the age, but there's also this like position of power within the industry itself. So I didn't really think about that before um and that did kind of like bring a new perspective and how I interpreted the Florence Pugh Zach Braff romance though do I still think that he needs to date people his own age absolutely absolutely I think just with like Florence and Zach and other kind of age gap relationships where the younger one is still an adult it's like is it predatory probably not but is it fucking weird Yeah. Is it kind of loser behavior? Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, we don't care about every single couple that exists, right? There's like thousands, millions of them. But we do care whenever a couple makes a headline because of some spicy drama going on in their lives. (laughs) Because when that happens, their relationship becomes a form of entertainment. In 2016, a group of scientists actually found that watching dramatic movies triggers endorphins and brings in an increased sense of group bonding. So watching celebrity drama probably creates some of the same effects. Fixating on other people's problems can also act as a form of escapism for people from their own stressful lives. So there are some couples that are involved in multiple dramatic scandals over a long period of time throughout their relationship. For example, F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald, or more recently, Tristan Thompson and Khloe Kardashian. But one of the biggest celebrity relationship scandals of the 20th century involved movie star Elizabeth Taylor, who actually had seven marriages throughout her life. 
One of her husbands, Richard Burton, a Welsh actor, she married in 1964, divorced in 1974, remarried in 1975, then divorced again in 1976. Elizabeth and Richard first started rendezvousing as an extramarital affair. Elizabeth was on her fourth marriage with singer-actor Eddie Fisher, and Richard had been married to actress Sybil Williams for the previous 14 years and counting. Given the circumstances of how they met, plus the on-off divorcing and remarrying, it's no surprise their relationship caused a media circus. The press even dubbed them Liz and Dick. According to gossip columnist Luella Parsons, the massive amount of publicity they received ought to have killed them. So the pair met in 1962 on the set of filming Cleopatra, which was produced by 20th Century Fox. Remember, this was the 60s, so extramarital affairs were even spicier than they are today. As a response to the scandal, 20th Century Fox sued Elizabeth and Richard for $50 million, and the U.S. State Department considered even revoking Richard's work visa after an Ohio representative called their relationship a public outrage. The couple was also known for spending lavishly, which added this, like, cinematic flair to their relationship. According to a Vanity Fair article, Burton once bought a $960,000 jet plane on a whim after they flew on it to Paris. The couple supported an army of charities, extended family, and staff. They brought property in Puerto Vallarta, Switzerland, and Ireland, and owned the Calisma, their floating luxe palace. They also owned paintings by Monet, Picasso, Renoir, Rouault, Pissarro, Degas, Augustus John, and Rembrandt. But their most lavish spending was on jewelry. Taylor had an insatiable love and desire for jewels. And like you would expect for any whirlwind romance, uh, Elizabeth and Richard were also known for their fights, both in the private and public sphere. And some of the comments that they've made to the press raise eyebrows on whether or not these fights were genuine or if some of them were more performative. For example, Elizabeth once said, Richard loses his temper with true enjoyment. It's beautiful to watch. And Richard spoke on the subject too, telling the Daily Mirror, We live out for the benefit of the mob, the sort of idiocies they've come to expect. We will often pitch a battle purely for the exercise. I will accuse her of being ugly. She will accuse me of being a talentless son of a bitch. And this sort of frightens people. I love arguing with Elizabeth. Sounds healthy. <laughs> However, despite the strain the press undoubtedly put on their relationship and coverage that usually painted Elizabeth in a misogynistic light, tabloid and media coverage of their incredible wealth, European socialite status, and performative drama all contributed to public interest in them overall, which ultimately added to their career success. For example, in 1964, the New York Times covered Richard's run as Hamlet on Broadway. The couple drew unprecedented crowds of 5,000 plus people that required a dozen policemen to barricade a path for their exit. The New York Times reported at the time, it becomes evident after questioning theater veterans and people in the crowds that neither Mr. Burton alone nor Miss Taylor by herself attracts the thousands. Rather, it appears that the combination of both has created a kind of third personality that has excited the imagination of the public. When questioned, members of the crowd usually reply that they want to see Mr. Burton and Miss Taylor because of all the publicity about their romance. Even in the 80s, the hype for their relationship continued. By 1983, Richard and Elizabeth had moved on to other partners, but they collaborated again professionally on a stage revival of Noelle Coward's play, Private Lives. The premise of the play centers around fighting honeymooners, and of course, the two actors were starring as the leads. Initially, when Private Lives debuted in Boston, a lot of critics were left unimpressed and wrote unfavorable reviews. However, the appeal of these two leads basically mirroring their relationship for the stage 
brought in so many sales. W.J. Weatherby, who reviewed the play for The Guardian when it reached Broadway, called it the show business event of the season, as tabloids filled their columns with gossip and will-they-won't-they rumors of a third marriage surfaced. Couples that are also tied together with a love triangle also tend to bring in a lot of media coverage, specifically misogynistic media coverage. Society loves to see two women in particular in competition over a man. They love to frame the tension, the tension, I use air quotes because sometimes it's completely fabricated, but quotes the tension between the two women as a signal of a cat fight. And they love using slut-shaming tactics to criticize the quote-unquote other woman in the relationship with, of course, little attention on the man, even if he's cheating. For kids in the 2000s, our big celebrity love triangle was Aaron Carter, Hilary Duff, and Lindsay Lohan. And recently, Selena Gomez and Hailey Bieber's apparent feud over Justin Bieber made headlines. But I actually think the most interesting coverage of our time was on the triangle of Brad Pitt, Jennifer Aniston, and Angelina Jolie. As a preface, um, Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston started dating in 1998 and tied the knot in 2000. In January 2005, they announced they were separating, and two months later, Jennifer filed for divorce. During the divorce proceedings, Brad was filming Mr. and Mrs. Smith with Angelina Jolie. They immediately started dating, though claimed there was never any infidelity. And in June 2005, Brad Pitt did an interview with Diane Sawyer, who interviewed him, or more like grilled him, about his relationship with Angelina. Did Angelina Jolie break up your marriage? No. Everyone says she's a homewrecker. It's a good story. Ultimately, this love triangle had the right optics for a Hollywood picture. Angelina Jolie's image in the 90s was, as Vanity Fair put it, that of a tattooed vixen with a taste for bisexuality, heroin, brotherly incest, mental institutions, and wearing her husband's blood. In contrast, Jennifer Aniston was the girl next door, America's sweetheart. As Guardian columnist Zoe Williams argued in 2022, Jennifer was an ideal woman for the post-feminist 90s, as exemplified by her hair. Not too long, attention-seeking, not too short, feminist-slash-independent, not too blonde, conventional, or too dark, vampy, not too shiny, airhead, nor in any way dull, frigid. It was the perfect man-pleasing hair for the late 20th century woman. And of course, a lot of the people who were Team Jennifer held on to these kinds of 90s characterizations of them. However, Angelina's pivot towards humanitarian work and motherhood in the early 2000s added another element to the story, ultimately swaying much of the public into her favor. As Constance Grady explains for Vox, Jennifer was painted as the loser, the spinster, poor pathetic Jen. Dark rumors swirled that maybe she hadn't even wanted children, that maybe she picked her career over kids. So what was Brad's role in all this? Grady notes, Brad Pitt didn't have to prove he was the right kind of man. That was already assumed. He existed to choose the right woman and to prove her rightness with his approval. The love triangle framing gave the audiences an opportunity to pick sides, which allowed fans to bond within their chosen teams and gave them the illusion that this was like a game rather than, you know, something that deals with real people's lives. Cheating or alleged cheating is always a way to draw media attention. Last year, we saw couples that mostly flew under the radar, like Try Guys, Ned Fulmer and Ariel, and John Mulaney and Anna Marie Tendler, suddenly get a storm of attention when one member was suspected to have cheated on the other. And a lot of the reason for why we respond to cheating in this way is not just because in this country a lot of people hate cheating <laughs> and they feel like another couple's cheating drama potentially brings up maybe their own trauma with cheating, but also a lot of the reason that the public responded to John Mulaney and Ned Fulmer was because of 
their personal image crafting as celebrity figures. Another case where celebrity image crafting goes into the reception of a relationship fallout is Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake. Britney Spears became famous at a pretty young age on Mickey Mouse Club and then became a worldwide pop star by the time she was 18 years old. She also grew up in the Bible Belt and was raised Christian and as a teenager had professed that she was going to wait to have sex until marriage. All of this was emphasized by the fact that everything about her presentation leaned on the innocent and docile. Her Hit Me Baby One More Time video had her dancing around in a schoolgirl outfit and she was pressured to sing with the childlike voice by her management. Evidently, in the dickest move of the century, during a radio interview for Star and Buck Wild Morning Show in 2002, Justin Timberlake broke the news that he and Britney did have sex during their relationship. Justin Timberlake is in the house, and I just want to ask you one question. Did you Britney Spears? <laughs> yes or no? Oh, man. Come on, man. Okay, I did it. No, yeah! Justin also went on this like retaliation crusade, which inevitably raised support for him over Britney. For example, for his Cry Me a River music video that was released in 2002, he showed getting revenge on a woman who has been unfaithful to him. And the woman, of course, looks a lot like Britney Spears. Part of the reason for the anti-Britney fervor was, of course, like textbook misogyny, but also because of this perceived switch up from her innocent Puritan image. Not only did she sleep with Justin, who she was not married to, she also slept with someone else who was not even in the relationship. When Diane Sawyer interviewed Britney in 2003, she attacked her for cheating. You broke his heart. You did something that caused him so much pain, so much suffering. What did you do? While the public generally has been supportive of Britney post-conservatorship, I still feel like the way that image crafting affects relationships and the coverage of relationships has been a constant issue. John Mulaney, for instance, was known as a wife guy, always talking about how much he loves his wife, and the media framed him as this good guy feminist. And because of that image crafting, his fans were really betrayed and upset when he divorced his wife and then almost immediately started a relationship with Olivia Munn. Ultimately, the public loves a good show when it comes to celebrity relationship drama coverage. Though for nine times out of 10, the coverage usually skews more misogynistic. Even though we'd like to think that we've fully grown past 2000s era reporting, I feel like just the misogynistic remarks targeted towards Hailey Bieber, Olivia Wilde, Amber Heard, and Angelina Jolie, I've missed their own scandals in the past year prove otherwise. On a more positive note, people are equally invested in quote-unquote successful celebrity couples. These couples that share wholesome photos of each other on Instagram and do cute couple quiz videos for GQ and whatnot provide their fans with that happily ever after dopamine rush, such as the case with Zendaya and Tom Holland and Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. The latter couple who were once engaged but broke it off and then finally married 20 years later in a very rom-com Hollywood type of finale. So, by definition, a power couple, also known as a super couple, is a popular or financially wealthy pairing that intrigues and fascinates the public in an intense or even obsessive fashion. According to Dictionary.com, the first time super couple was used as a term was in 1925 in a book describing the pairing of Jack Tanner and Anne Whitfield from George Bernard Shaw's play Man and Superman as a super couple fit to propagate a race of their kind. But in the mid-1980s, people started using the term power couple instead. In 1983, the term was used to describe Bob and Elizabeth Dole, then U.S. Senator and Secretary of Education, respectively. 
1998 article on Paul and Linda McCartney, the new statesman proclaimed the era was in an age of the power couple. And then again in 2015, the New Republic declared the current era was the age of the power couple, pointing to Bill and Hillary Clinton. Some of the more recent power couples as dubbed by the media include Barack and Michelle Obama, Brangelina, Will and Jada Pinkett Smith, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, Sonny and Cher, and David and Victoria Beckham. I would also add Beyonce and Jay-Z to this list, even though personally, I am not a fan of Jay-Z and I'm not a fan of his marriage to Beyonce because um, I believe they got together when she was in her late teens and he was a man, like an adult, fully adult man, like late 20s. So I'm not for that at all, but I guess by definition, they are considered a power couple. Not everyone will have the same idea when it comes to who qualifies as a power couple, obviously, as I just kind of signified, but I feel like if both people are successful and famous on their own, then that's enough to qualify. Beverly Hills family and relationship psychotherapist Dr. Fran Walsh explains the public fascination. Given all the garbage we've been fed about finding Prince or Princess Charming and living happily ever after, it's no wonder we're drawn to real-life versions of these supposed fairy tales. I feel like celebrity couples have that fairy tale esque appeal because usually the wedding is super expensive and super fairy tale like all on its own. But then also, it's like two beautiful people getting together, moving into a beautiful, expensive mansion, Beverly Hills house together, going on luxurious vacations together, creating even more beautiful children together. Like, it's very optics base. And then obviously we only see the positive aspects of the relationship being posted online and being shared about. Unless there's like a major scandal or a breakup that happens. But usually, for the most part, we only see like the more fun interactions they have together, the love notes that they proclaim for each other over social media, and that kind of pulls together this entire fairy tale package and ties it neatly with a little bow. To give you a sense of public interest level, some of the most liked photos a celebrity can post is about their relationship. Kim and Kanye wedding photos, Justin and Selena kissing, Beyonce's pregnancy announcement, which apparently brought chaos to the E! newsroom, and Tom Holland's birthday post for Zendaya. I also think with couples like Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez, also known as Benifer, um, as I said, they were engaged like 20 years ago and then they broke up and then suddenly they seemed to get together like almost randomly and they got married. And I think, again, that was like a super cinematic type of uh, relationship. It kind of reminded me of the parent trap, you know, when they get divorced and then years later, like, 11 years later, they get back together again. It, it kind of brings into this idea that true love does exist after all because it's exhibited by these beautiful people and that really gets people going. I think the most toxic part though of idolizing a relationship is that people stop seeing it as a real relationship and therefore get blindsided by any kind of scandal or breakup that might come out. For example, I remember when Beyonce released Lemonade, it implied that Jay-Z cheated on her and people were like, if someone as beautiful as Beyonce can get cheated on, there's no hope for me, which is a complete misunderstanding of why people cheat to begin with. It has nothing to do with beauty. <laughs> Similarly, when well-liked couples like Amy Poehler and Will Arnett split up, a lot of people got really upset saying things like, I don't believe in love anymore. 
when in reality, we only know the good parts of these people's relationships that they're willing to share with us. We don't know anything else. And I'm sure if we saw the bigger picture, we'd understand why any couple might want to split. When it comes to celebrity relationships, though, it's not just the real ones that matter. It's the fictional ones, too. <laughs> For example, Larry Stillinson, Larry Stillinson, is that correct? Uh, the fictional pairing of Louis Tomlinson and Harry Styles from One Direction. I'm not going to go too deep into the lore for this one because there's quite a lot. And I was also never a One Directioner, so I can't really pull much from my memories. But in general, Larry was believed to varying degrees by fans. And nowadays, most of them can at least admit that it was more for fun than for any actual believability. So a brief history of how this came about. Fans noticed Harry Styles and Louis Tomlinson were affectionate with each other and closer friends than with other members of their group, which led the swarms of mostly teenage girls to come to the conclusion that the boys were in a romantic relationship being kept secret by their alleged homophobic management. Although there were other pairings, Larry was by far the most popular and had the most dedicated fan base. But, you know, this is not the first time that fans have shipped band members. Um, one of the earliest ones I can think of is Mick Lennon, which is the ship name of John Lennon and Paul McCartney from the Beatles. Granted, because a lot of people were more openly homophobic in the 60s, their fan base cannot compare to the scale of the fan base of Larry, but it just goes to show that fixating on a band's inner dynamics is not a new concept. And part of the reason why fans do this is because band members usually have little social life or little publicized social life outside of their group. Especially since the 90s, boy and girl groups have been mostly just cogs in the pop culture manufacturing machine. They would rehearse long, long hours and they weren't allowed to date or really do anything fun that most um, young people do with their lives. In South Korea, uh, the K-pop industry is notorious for this kind of like uh, controlling management style. This all incidentally leads to a lot of intergroup shipping. The rationality behind it is if they don't have time to date or hang out with other people, then who's to say they're not dating each other? <laughs> Taehyung and Jungkook from BTS are one of the more popular ones, and Jenny and Lisa from Blackpink as well. So Thomas Bottonet wrote a really good article on this topic and how idol shipping affects fans of different cultures. He writes, in particular, shipping that reimagines boy groups such as BTS within romantic or homoerotic relationships is especially common as a method of articulating fandom and exploring sexual agency, thus producing spaces within Korea's patriarchal society where women's sexual desires can be safely explored. While BTS shipping in Japan tends to conceptualize homoerotic relationships between men via sexual practices and behaviors divorced from identity, Anglophone shipping tends to instantly overtly deploy LGBTQ identity politics. Nevertheless, both practices possess queer potentials that allow fans to effectively explore their sexuality. Shipping has become such a big part of fandom culture that there's also like rumors that go around that management companies encourage shipping among fans as a marketing tactic. Like they have the idols doing um, skinship and other kinds of like fan service. And while we're on the topic in general, there's been a long history of bands and artists, especially those with queer audiences, performing queerness or bisexuality on stage by everyone from pop punk boy bands to the infamous 2003 VMA's Madonna, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera kiss. But we can't talk about fake ships without talking about Taylor Swift or Gaylor. Gaylor is this fan theory that Taylor is queer. 
Gaylor fans have come to this conclusion by fixating on queer interpretations of her lyrics, like secret romances and disapproving families, and on her documented female friendships with other celebrities like Diana Agron and Cara Delevingne. But most famously, her friendship with Carly Kloss was shipped as Gaylor. So how did Gaylor come about? Well, Taylor Swift's brand, like what most music artists try to do, encourages parasociality among her fans. But what I think makes Taylor particularly special is the fact that she's been around for over a decade, which allows a lot of fans to grow up alongside her, and also her songwriting style, which leans towards confessional. Part of her songwriting style also includes leaving Easter eggs, aka self-references, or hints at future projects, which lead fans to believe that she does the same with her sexuality and relationships. This ultimately intensifies the parasocial relationships that her very dedicated fans have with her because they feel that they have a secret knowledge of who she is actually that other, more casual, less dedicated fans don't have. For example, when her song Lavender Haze dropped, some fans interpreted the song as a reference to queerness because of Lavender's symbolism in queer history. Another reason why fans might uh, believe that a certain celebrity is queer because of the music industry and Hollywood's history of forcing their talent into the closet. Lance from NSYNC was closeted until 2006 to protect the band's reputation. Theorizing on its own is harmless, and it does have the potential to build close-knit communities. And while I don't believe Gaylor and, you know, Larry fans are maliciously trying to out celebrities in any particular way. Unfortunately, fixating on a person's sexuality, especially in public online spaces, can lead to that. And especially when fans cross boundaries and start harassing celebrities for answers. Louis Tomlinson actually admitted that the Larry relationship allegations hurt his friendship with Harry in real life by making them feel as though every minor interaction they had was being surveyed and overanalyzed. I also remember the actor Kit Connor from Heartstopper was pressured into outing himself because fans were accusing him of queer baiting. Hi, Nina. Um, my favorite celebrity couple, it scares me to realize that this was like some 10 years ago now, but back in the Tumblr days, it was Emma Stone and Andrew Garfield. Like, they were everything. I was obsessed with like, finding all the gift sets where they talk about each other and when Andrew Garfield would call her Emily Jean Stone. Like, they just had the best chemistry and they, you could tell that they were so cool and funny and that they liked each other. It was absolutely devastating when they broke up. I really thought that love was dead. Um, and honestly, I miss thinking about them. It's parasocial and weird, but they were just like teenage me's like ideal couple. Um, my least favorite is Haley Bieber and Justin Bieber because they don't seem to like each other very much, but I digress. Oh my gosh, I feel like Tumblr was such a time for shipping. And I also feel like part of it is because you could literally create a blog dedicated to a ship and then people would follow that blog and get like all this information and stuff that they would not necessarily be able to find themselves. And then I think the whole community aspect of Tumblr and the fandom theories that would circulate, it was just really easy to get pulled up in it. And it was really fun. Um, I remember I followed this blog, this this person's blog, and they were like a Harrison shipper. So they were really into like the ship of Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford. Um, 
<laughs> and I, I don't know. I was not, I was not like a diehard Karis and Chipper, but then they would always like share these quotes that were just really cute. And I was like, oh my God, that's so cute. Never mind that in real life, Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford did have an affair. Um, and Carrie was 19 and Harrison was in his mid thirties and also married. So not very cute, but you know, that was not, uh, included in the, in the Tumblr post that I read. So I feel like the way that Tumblr was just designed, it, was a very um, conducive place to engage in like the shipping part of fandom. And also I do remember on like everyone's blogs that I followed in their about me page, they would also list their shipping preferences. So they would list couples that they really liked together too. So it was just like something that was normal and it was actually weird if you didn't have any shipping preferences. Anyways, I was like never a huge Andrew Garfield, Emma Stone fan shipper because I wasn't exposed to their content on Tumblr for some reason. Like it just never made it to my dashboard. I think probably if I saw enough GIF sets of it, I would be like, yeah, this makes sense. I'm obsessed with them. But that's totally valid, your experience. Um, I'm trying to think like what couple I liked the most. For some reason, the thing that I'm, the couple that I'm thinking of right now was Ian Summerholder and Nina Dobrev and they were dating during the Vampire Diaries when they were working on it together and I was a big fan of the Vampire Diaries at that point in my time. I did not continue watching the series. I didn't finish it to the end but for the first like three seasons I was super into it and I was a huge Delena Shipper which is the ship name of Damon and Elena who were played respectively by Ian and Nina and for some reason I felt like Ian and Nina's relationship granted I was like 13 so maybe this makes sense for a 13 year old brain but I felt like because Nina and Ian were dating like this indicated something larger about Delena and how this was actually like the true relationship and the chemistry was like fully real I don't know it was validating in a weird way even though their relationship technically existed outside of the TV show because it's just a TV show it was just their work but for my brain like at that time like I really connected um the existence of Delena with the existence of Ian and Nina dating in real life Similar to the idea that a celebrity hanging out with their friend or with their band member leads to people theorizing that they're in a relationship, this also applies to romantic co-stars um, for actors. Across so many movies and TV shows, fans believe that great chemistry on screen must translate to great chemistry off screen too. For example, David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson in The X-Files, Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain in Scenes from a Marriage, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel in 500 Days of Summer. It all seems rooted in this belief that uh, everything that's portrayed on a stage or on screen must have some kernel of truth, and all the public-facing PR acting that celebrities do when they're promoting their movies must be genuine. The fact that there are actually lots of examples of real celebrities meeting on set and falling in love, like Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton and Brangelina, as I mentioned before, um, only fan the flames. But, you know, just because celebrities have great chemistry doesn't mean that there's actually anything going on. For example, Sydney Sweeney and Glenn Powell were facing dating speculations during their filming and press interviews for their upcoming romantic comedy, Anyone But You. Even though they never officially dated, their public flirtiness made headlines, made especially scandalous considering they were both dating other people at the time. 
Sydney is still engaged to restaurateur Jonathan Devino, and she was engaged to him throughout the entirety of this filming, but it's a relationship she has kept mostly low-key. Glenn was dating model Gigi Paris. Adding to the conspiracy of it, though, Glenn and Gigi broke up with Gigi posting an Instagram video with the cryptic caption, know your worth and on to the next, at the height of the speculations. But it's funny because also Ashton Kutcher and Reese Witherspoon, they did a rom-com together. Um, what is it called? Your Place or Mine. <laughs> which got pretty bad reviews. But I also remember when they were doing all these press events for it, people were like, could they look any less attracted to each other? People on my timeline on Twitter were complaining about them not doing the performative PR flirtation act. So it's kind of like, what do people actually want <laughs> out of celebrities who are co-starring in these movies? Do you want the show of like flirtation or do you not? And then on the flip side of relationships that are fabricated by the public, there are relationships that are fabricated by PR. <laughs> the idea of a PR relationship isn't new and it makes total sense why they work because, you know, as we've mentioned, celebrity relationships can get a lot of press coverage, which can not only be used to promote a movie that two people are in or just like elevate their status as celebrities as a whole. But I will say that over the years, people have become more skeptical about whether or not a relationship is real or if it's just PR. Also, I found that the more random a coupling seems to be, the more likely people think it's PR. So for example, Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson, um, really Pete Davidson with any woman. Also, Kylie Jenner and Timothy Chalamet's rumored relationship, as I mentioned earlier. Of course, we'll never really know if something is PR, but it's usually easy to tell. Like, are they usually together only for the length of a press cycle? Do they only have photographs together during planned paparazzi walks? Do their friends tell, like, page six anything particular about their relationship? Or is it just the very general, oh, they're just so in love? One of the most talked about romantic co-star couples from the 2000s was Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson, who met on the set of Twilight, which premiered in 2008. They began dating in 2009 and publicly announced the relationship in 2011, then broke up in 2013 after all five Twilight Saga movies had been released. What's interesting about this particular relationship is that Twilight's production team was heavily against it from the beginning, though once they actually started dating, they were really hoping that they would stay together, <laughs> fearing that any drama between them would affect their on-screen chemistry for the remainder of the movies that had to be filmed. While the couple did genuinely get together at the start, um, there were still reporters who alleged that it was a PR relationship. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that Kirsten Stewart's sexuality has been like a longstanding debate topic for no fucking reason at all because it's no one's actual business. And despite the fact that she has said that she's bisexual, a lot of people use the fact that she's dated a lot of women as ammo for why this relationship could not have happened. However, sometimes relationships are less about capitalizing um, and more about self-preservation, though I feel like it's rare now with like the fact that society has been way more tolerant and accepting of um, LGBTQ relationships. But historically, lavender marriages were ways for celebrities, for queer celebrities, to protect themselves from homophobia. A lavender marriage, by definition, is a male-female mixed orientation marriage undertaken as a marriage of convenience to conceal the socially stigmatized sexual orientation of one or both partners. Emily Marth writes for Vice, lavender marriages, as they were called, began as a response to big studios including moral clauses in their stars' contracts. Gay stars picked wives, often actresses and celebrities themselves, in order to hide their sexualities and keep fans lusting after them on screen. 
Actor Rock Hudson married his wife Phyllis Gates in 1955, and while their marriage was never a public scandal, Rock's gayness was considered an open secret in Hollywood. As biographer Mark Griffin told NPR, As one person expressed it to me, he was so kind to everyone that he worked with, whether that was the leading lady or the gaffer or the editor, that everyone sort of uh, kept this secret for him. They knew that if he was exposed at that time, that that would have just ended his career immediately. So it is sort of a conspiracy of silence, but it's interesting that they're doing this because they really love this person that they're working with and feel protective of him. A year before the couple married, MGM actor Van Johnson was outed by Confidential Magazine, so there are theories that Rock's talent agent, Henry Wilson, was catching wind of similar targeted exposés towards Rock and knew he had to get him married off quickly. So Rock ended up marrying his 30-year-old secretary, who Griffin describes as having a very engaging, fresh-off-the-farm quality, with this air of county fairs and church socials about her. But it was clear that Phyllis didn't know anything about the marriage because in 1958, after three years of marriage, she confronted Rock about the gay rumors and she also hired private eye Fred Otosh to tape record their conversation. And then in 2013, The Hollywood Reporter obtained Otosh's secret files and released a transcript of the conversation. According to the tape transcript, Phyllis asks him, how long after we were married did you have your first homosexual affair? And Rock says, oh, I don't know, the next day. I feel bad for both Rock and Phyllis in this situation. Obviously, I do feel bad for Phyllis because she was lied to. But, you know, also I feel bad for Rock because it was something that he had to do to save himself, his image, his career, everything. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover even launched an FBI investigation of Rock for homosexual tendencies in 1965. Rock and Phyllis had the most proof as to having a lavender marriage, but people have speculated on Judy Garland and Vincent Minnelli and Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy as well. Considering old Hollywood studios documented strict control of its stars, the widespread homophobia of the era, and the taboo of remaining unmarried, it's not hard to believe that these relationships could have been concocted by the studio system. However, most of the information we have was concocted by gossip calmness, or it was all like hearsay, so we can't say for sure which relationship out there was fake and which wasn't. Today's stars, particularly those in reality TV, are aware that publicity stunts can be an effective way to garner short-term attention and a way to make money. The Kardashians are notorious for PR stunts, leading many to believe that Kim's tryst with Pete Davidson was just another one of them. However, there are also instances of real, genuine couples who purposely give provocative quotes or who take staged paparazzi walks as self-promotion or promotion of the relationship to gain relevance. The biggest example I can think of is Megan Fox and Machine Gun Kelly. From 2020 to 2022, I feel like they purposely overshared the intimate details of their relationship so that people would keep talking about them. This is a written response I received. Megan Fox and MGK are by far my least favorite celebrity couple. Seeing them together is like a Lovecraftian nightmare for me. A tragic tale of a heroine letting a nightmarish monster sink its claws into her, both metaphorically and literally, with that trap of an engagement ring. Every time they go off and back on again, it gives me whiplash, luring me into the false sense of security that Megan is finally free from the beast just for her to get on some interview and say something about how their rider dies. Harley and Joker, king and queen, more like victim and a weird, gross, possessive man with a history of hitting on underage girls. Everything I've learned about them has been against my will, and at this point, I would willingly subject 
subject myself to an internal sunshine of the spotless mind type experiment just to regain my sense of sanity and finally forget about these two. Oh my god. <laughs> Machine Gun Kelly and Megan Fox are by far like the most submitted answer to what is your least favorite celebrity couple question that I received because I think they were just so over the top and so down our throats that it was impossible to avoid them. Like we were all so hyper aware of this weird relationship. And at the same time, I also received an answer about this, but this person was like, Megan was kind of on the cusp of getting this. We were wrong about her. Megan Fox deserves an apology type of reframing narrative in the media and in the pop culture and then she goes around and gets into this cringy relationship with machine gun kelly and then suddenly she just became a joke like everything about her and this like narrative just died off and everything that was being reported about her was just like weird stuff about her relationship which was really sad to watch at the same time as you were saying, Machine Gun Kelly has made some really crazy statements justifying statutory rape and making statements about how like he thought Kendall Jenner was really hot when she was underage. So he's just like said some really creepy predatorial things despite, you know, having a daughter. So you would think he like wouldn't be like that, but you know, whatever, which I feel like has gone against what Megan herself has been all about. And especially when you look at Jennifer's body and how that movie is all about these creepy, effeminate men in the music industry who like use their charm and their unassuming appearances to lure women and specifically underage girls in the context of Jennifer's body into these harmful schemes like Megan Fox's character literally gets sacrificed by these guys who use their proximity to femininity to get her to trust them. Like, it's just so glaringly ironic, so painfully ironic, so disgustingly ironic how this all unfolded. And I definitely think that there are parts of their relationship that come across as abusive, specifically with how Machine Gun Kelly treats Megan. And so I don't want to like victim blame, but yeah, it's just, it's just really sad to watch that whole thing go about. I also think it's just in general, like a red flag for a relationship when the couple uses words like we're star-crossed lovers and we're twin flames and like, you know, they really lean into the poetic aspects of their relationship while also explaining to people like it's like this whirlwind and it has like these severe ups and downs and kind of romanticizing those ups and downs um, because I feel like it's them justifying the toxicity. Whereas the healthiest relationships that I know of, people are just very chill. They don't talk about their partner in any kind of like dramatic way. And honestly, I feel like probably some of their problems in their relationship stemmed from how public it was and probably this pressure to make sure everything was all nice and dandy when in reality they were facing a lot of issues internally. So I think that probably was unhealthy and created a lot of unhealthy behaviors between the both of them. Obviously, I don't know the details of their relationship, but I do think that if they do get back together, I hope that they'll keep it more private. So back to what I was saying about how celebrities will sometimes manufacture their own PR when it comes to their relationships. Um, Megan Fox and Machine Gun Kelly's besties, Kourtney Kardashian and Travis Barker, um, 
are also pretty well known for their highly publicized relationship, which culminated in their very extravagant wedding coverage. This couple reportedly made $15 million from the ordeal, which featured a controversial collaboration with Dolce & Gabbana. Weddings in general are great PR opportunities. Nick Jonas and Priyanka Chopra's wedding included at least eight separate brand deals, including Ralph Lauren, JBL Audio, Malibu Rum, and Lime Scooter. However, most relationship PR is more low-key. They usually go for, like, staged paparazzi photos. <laughs> Though I think there's, like, a certain art for taking paparazzi photos because a lot of them end up coming out, like, super cringy. The worst I've seen in a while was the video of Pete Davidson and Emily Ratajkowski that was released by TMZ when they were doing their little dating thing. Um, the video was like Pete in a car apparently dropping Emily off or something after a basketball game. And then Emily literally waits to make sure the camera starts recording before she starts walking. And then she poses for it kind of. It's really funny, but just goes to show how staged it all was. And I don't know. It, it definitely spoke a lot about how... Um, a lot of things are fake <laughs> in Hollywood circles. Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin also worked with a paparazzi photographer when their daughter Apple was first born. They staged the first baby photos and sold the shots to a major magazine, and these pictures were rumored to sell for upwards of a million dollars, which was split some ways between the couple and the pops. So, I mean, that's like part of the incentive to take paparazzi photos. Like, it's not only to stay relevant within the public eye, but also um, you can make quite a lot of money doing them. And at this point, I feel like in our culture, paparazzi photos are just a part of celebrity life. Even when the pandemic was at its height in 2020, we got so many crazy paparazzi photos of celebrities who were just walking around their neighborhoods. Ben Affleck and Ana de Armas, who were dating at the time, were regularly photographed walking their dog. Shawn Mendes and Camila Cabello, who were also dating, were videoed walking. And the video is so fucking funny because they're walking like one mile per hour. I highly recommend looking for that video. It always gets posted on Twitter as a meme, but it's just really funny. And I think goes to show how like when we were quarantining, how celebrities just like didn't know what to do with themselves except for to call the paparazzi because that was like one way that they were able to maintain normalcy in their days. Ultimately, I feel like the reason we care so much about celebrity relationships is in part because of how the media covers them. Tabloids especially love using overtly dramatic phrases like Angie and Jen, explosive face-to-face -face showdown, and Selena Secret, pregnant and alone. Media outlets know how to construct celebrity relationship drama, and they manipulate audiences' desire for parasociality and insider secrets about their favorite celebrities, which in turn ends up hurting audiences and hurting celebrities. And usually a lot of this information is based on, like, lies, <laughs> or they're just based on, like, these, like, tidbits that have no factual grounding, right? And for non-fans, the news just covers our timelines and our feeds, so it's like inescapable even if we didn't necessarily care about these people to begin with. I think that while celebrity ships can be fun, they can be escapist, they can build communities even, ultimately what's important to remember is that we don't know any of these people. We don't know the celebrities, we don't know the people they're dating, and we don't know the nature of their relationships either. I think over time, I've realized that like I cannot project any type of moral idolatry onto a celebrity because usually they'll prove me wrong because I, I mean I think it's unfair to project that kind of um pressure onto anyone anyway because we're all human and we're all imperfect and some people 
way more imperfect than others, uh, particularly if you're wealthy and have no understanding of your own privilege. But um, needless to say, some of the expectations that people have towards their favorite stars are impossible to live up to. But I also think celebrity relationships and the fanfare for them are inevitable. It's about as inevitable as celebrity culture is because they're just so tied together. I just think it's like interesting to talk about. And I also think it's interesting that as like the older I get, obviously like the more detached I get from celebrity culture and how as a kid I was like super, super into it and just the way that I responded to certain celebrity gossip versus the way that I respond to it now is so different. And I'm wondering if anyone else has gone on that same kind of journey. So now I'm going to bring in our guest, Kate Curtin. And um, I first came across her through this NPR interview that she did uh, recently because it was about Taylor Swift. But I thought she would be a good person to talk to. She's um, researched a lot on parasocial relationships. And because parasocial relationships are such a big part of why we care about celebrity relationships as a whole, I thought it would be a good um, companion topic to discuss in this episode. My name is Kate Curtin. I am a professor of communication studies at California State University in Los Angeles. So earlier in the episode, we talked a lot about public investment in celebrity relationships, like starting from Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, um, and then talking about, of course, Taylor Swift and Maddie Healy, which are you in the loop for that? <laughs> um, I've sort of had to be because of the NPR article. Personally, I'm a Katy Perry fan. So it took okay. me away from Taylor Swift a little bit, but since NPR article, um, yeah, Taylor Swift has been a big part of my uh, professional life. <laughs> well, my question is, and I guess this can relate to Katy Perry too, but just how do you think audiences perceived relationships to celebrities have changed over time? And I think um, the immediate answer is access. So with um, Elizabeth Taylor, you we only got as much as she gave us you know she chose to go to the events where the photographers were she chose to uh, curated her image every time her image was out there um that was you know before paparazzi were as crazy as they were before social media obviously and um so now consumers have unlimited access to celebrities, um, whether that be through social media and Twitter or the paparazzi or, you know, people magazine, people.com, all of this stuff, we can, um, you know, Katy Perry hosted the 72 hour live stream of did like, you, you know, people watched her sleep. I did. I, so I didn't watch the entirety. I watched a lot of it. Um, and that is actually why we published the article. So the NPR article was based off of research we did um, about musicians and parasocial relationships. So these parasocial relationships are one-sided relationships that consumers have with a media character. And it started in the 1950s with newscasters. So the original authors, Horton and Wall, did research and learned that um, if a consumer had a parasocial relationship with a newscaster, they viewed their news as more credible. 
So there was something about this relationship that affected the content of the information. And so they did research on what they what they coined the parasocial relationship. And since then, it has been studied um, with television and movies and um, a lot of scripted characters. So when I got to Cal State LA, I was talking to my students and asking them about what TV shows they watched because I had been researching TV and they all said that they only watch YouTube. So we did this research on YouTube and um, we, we were wondering, can you still form a parasocial relationship on YouTube? And the research, the, the results were absolutely you can, because it is, we form these relationships similar to how we form interpersonal relationships. So they're based off of physical attraction and task attraction. And so then when, um, When my relationship with Katy Perry started, I was immediately able to sort of diagnose it as a parasocial (laughs) relationship, but I wanted to understand she's not a character. She's a real person. Now, what she chooses, just like Elizabeth Taylor, what she chooses to put out into the world is not her authentic self, but we think that it is, and we know so much about her and her relationships. And this is all the same with Taylor Swift. You know, we know what song she wrote with Joe Alwyn. We know what that was about. We know where she was in her relationship. We now know who she broke up with and what song she wrote about that. And that is this authenticity that written or scripted characters don't have. And so we were interested in exploring um, people's parasocial relationships with musicians. Um, and, And it rose in popularity when Taylor Swift had her first breakup. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think, um, it's all very positive. The parasocial, um, data sort of had an insurgence in the pandemic because people were cut off from their social ties in real life. And many of us returned to TV shows and movies that we had watched already. And it filled, you know, we're social beings. So these parasocial relationships filled our need for an interpersonal bond. Do you think parasocial relationships are fully harmful, though, as like lots of media publications seem to imply? Or do you think there are benefits that people don't consider? So I think what's really important and and the research is sort of or the media has sort of taken this in a harmful way. Um, parasocial relationships are not fans or stands. If you have a parasocial relationship, think of it exactly the same way as your interpersonal relationship. You're not stalking your best friend. You're not showing up at their house in the middle of the night to get pictures of them taking out their trash. Like you're not showing up at their hotel room when they come into town. You call them and make, you know, set a date to get coffee or something. That's what you do with a friend. Now, parasocial relationships are are one directional friendship. So Katy Perry is not friends with me. Taylor Swift is not friends with me, even though I might be in a parasocial relationship with them. Um, But I treat it like a friendship. So I want to be in their orbit. I want to, you know, when we do this research with kids, my favorite question is, would you invite this character to your birthday party? Hmm. So it's like, 
Yes, I want to invite Taylor Swift to my house for my birthday party. I don't want to, you know, have a Taylor Swift themed birthday party. Why do you think that people have kind of meshed together the concept of being a stan and having a parasocial relationship when they're two different Because things? I think people don't know what parasocial relationships are. So if they say, you know, and this is one of the reasons why I study it. If I were to go up to you and be like, so what celebrity are you in a relationship with? <laughs> you would be like, um, none, because, you know, I am not in Delusional. need of counseling. Yes. There you go. Delusional. That's the word. Yes. So like, no, I'm not in a relationship with a celebrity because I'm not delusional. But if I go through the scales with you and ask you the questions, like, what is your favorite show? Who was your favorite character on that show? If something bad happened to that character, did you feel bad? If something bad happened to that character, would you feel happy? Do you want what's best for that character? Do you follow that character into another show? Um, And then the kid thing about birthday parties and whatever. Everyone has experienced a parasocial relationship, Um, but it is more of a psychological term or a psychological label, whereas Stan is a colloquial term. Mm -hmm. Um, And we sort of see Stans more like we don't. I've been in a parasocial relationship with Lorelai Gilmore for like 30 years. (laughs) Nobody's ever seen that. You know, like that's not outside of my house. And if I go and find Lauren Graham, that's not my parasocial relationship. I'm not in a relationship with Lauren Graham. I'm in a relationship with Lorelai Gilmore, who doesn't exist outside of Stars Hollow, which doesn't exist. So it's more of an internal thing. And I think that we see stands like certainly you know, certainly on the streets of New York, if a movie is being filmed there, like there's hundreds of people there. And that's a different thing than what's going on with the parasocial relationship. I feel like for what, when I think of stands, I tand to think of like younger, like teenagers, you know, going crazy over like the Beatles and like K-pop and One Direction and whatnot. Do you find, or have you studied like if there's a difference between adults who have parasocial relationships versus like kids who have parasocial relationships is it compatible in any kind of way or do adults kind of react to um celebrities differently humans as social creatures we're looking for bonds everywhere and that starts the day you're born and ends the day you die we need relationships and connections. And so in my research and my experience, um, pretty much every single person I've talked to from the age of two to the age of 80 has been or is currently in a parasocial relationship. Um, And my original research was on preschoolers. So I was looking at kids between the ages of two and five. Um, And I was interested in how their parasocial relationships affected their playground relationships. And then, you know, and then this research on on musicians and parasocial relationships. Um, But I guess I didn't quite answer your original question. I don't see anything about parasocial relationships as being harmful. I think that once it gets into stalking and stan, then, yeah, that's harmful. It's harmful for everybody because it's delusional for the person who's doing it. It's a safety concern for the celebrity. 
but I don't study that part because uh, I'm not actually a psych psychologist. I'm a communication studies professor. Um, so I sort of end when it's all still very helpful, positive, healthy. Do you think that our parasocial relationships with certain celebrities have distorted our sense of a celebrity's responsibility to communicate to us in a transparent manner? Like when I think about the whole Taylor Swift and Maddie Healy situation and how he was saying all these crazy things. And a lot of her fans were like, speak up, Taylor. Like, we need you to disavow this because, you know, they felt betrayed in that way. But then at the end of the day, it's like she is still someone who doesn't have this relationship back with her fans. So I don't know. Right. Do you feel like there is a celebrity responsibility, though, knowing that their fans have this kind of relationship with them? Um, I mean, I think that's probably a question for the publicist, because the question is going to be, if Taylor does something that her fans don't like, are they not going to buy her next album? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, then her publicist is going to say, okay, you have to go apologize to your fans or no, these people love you. They want what's best for you. Like, don't worry about it. Um, and I think a lot of it comes out of this like entitlement that we now have, which comes back to your very first question about access. So now that we have access to these people all the time, we feel entitled to more access and more information, um, which is one of the biggest reasons to not allow, you know, now, okay, I'm bringing it all together. This is one reason to not allow teenagers to have access to social media. Because once you have access, you own that access. You don't forget. Once, you, once you've learned something, once you've seen something, you can't go back to a world in which you didn't know that that exists. And so now that we know that we have access to Taylor Swift whenever we want it, we are going to be entitled to that information. And then we're going to be entitled to our own opinions about it. And I think the healthiest thing for a celebrity to do is to not care at all, but, and to let their PR people deal with, you know, how do we keep you relevant? How do we keep you buying like our products? Um, I think what Taylor Swift has done really well until this year has been only letting the public know a little bit at a time. So she let us know about her writing process before the album came out so that we knew where the songs were coming from. And we knew very little about her relationship with Joe Alwyn, um, you know, while it was happening. And then they but but we knew about the music and that is her product, the music. She wants us to be in love with the music um, and everything she was giving us was very relatable because it's all about love and, you know, building relationships and breakups and all of that stuff. So we can then attach our own meaning to what information she's giving. Once you give away too much information, then one, as consumers, we have access to that. But she also becomes further separated from her community because she's not like us. She's a multi-billionaire. You know, if she wants to get on a private jet to go to Australia tomorrow, she can do that, whereas her fans can't. Um, but they can look past these small differences because they've attached so much meaning to the other parts of the relationship. 
So no, I mean, I think celebrities only owe us so much as keeps us buying their product, you know? And I think that's true for so much. Like I was, um, I was just shopping, um, for running shoes and I remember, falling in love with Nike because of Colin Kaepernick, because he made that stand. And we were like, we're going to support Nike. We've now spent a lot of money on Nike. And I had to remember why I was brand loyal. But, you know, as soon as Nike then says, you know, we don't care about LGBTQIA rights, well, then I'm not buying Nike anymore. Mm -hmm. So I think the celebrities only have only owe us so much as they still fit into our image of them to keep us coming back for more. That makes sense. But going back to what you said about Taylor Swift and her making so much money and that separating her from her fans, because I'm wondering, so do you think that it's easier to create a parasocial relationship with someone who appears to be living like a similar lifestyle to you? So parasocial relationships like interpersonal relationships are based primarily on three things. So the first one is a social attraction. So that is the extent to which the consumer or the viewer um, likes the personality or wants to befriend the character. Um, The next one is a physical attraction. This is the extent to which a consumer finds the celebrity physically appealing. Now, this does not need to be a sexual attraction, um, but it could be based off of identification or internalization of like, well, you have brown hair. I have brown hair. You are a woman. I am a woman. You know, I'm attracted to those qualities because I'm familiar with them. But it, it also could be sexual or physical. I find you beautiful and therefore I want to spend more time with you. And then the last one is task attraction, which is the extent to which the consumer perceives the character, or in this case, musician, as being capable, credible, or talented. This is the exact same reason why we form our friendships. You know, think about your best interpersonal friends. We are attracted to them socially, physically, and we see them as being talented in one way or another. And so we have all three of those things. And so as long as we have all three of those things with a character or a musician, then we have the basis of a parasocial relationship. What the research with musicians showed is they can't give away too much of their real life or else we won't be able to identify with them. Uh, You know, so like if they are on private jets every day and, you know, living this crazy life, then we're not going to be able to identify. But Taylor Swift is home with her cats and so are you and so am I. And so I can identify with that. And because I view that as being her core personality, then I can overlook the fact that she takes a private jet somewhere. So do you feel like not a lot of people have a parasocial relationship with Kim Kardashian? (laughs) Basically always living a very, um, a life that no one can relate to. That's such a great question. You know, if we think about it, no, I think people are still forming parasocial relationships with her because social attraction, if you want to befriend that kind of person or befriend her, then then the social attractions there physical attraction you can relate to her you know her body type or her you know phys, you know her hair or her being a mom or whatever and then task attraction 
nobody can say that she can't get stuff done, you know, <laughs> like she has no skills except being a celebrity and making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, no, I think people are still in parasocial relationships. I mean, the Kardashians show has been around for like 20 years or something. No, that's incredible. so it's <laughs> right. And if people weren't eating it up, then it wouldn't be on anymore. Yeah. I guess it's just like picking out the parts of a celebrity that are identifiable to you that you can relate to right. and having that be your focus as opposed to all the other stuff right. that well, is not relatable. Right. Well, and then the um, the NPR interview talked about Beyonce. And I think she's another, she's an unattainable female figure. Mm-hmm. And yet billions of people are in parasocial relationships with her. Um, and even like the interviewer was like, well, you know, she's a mom of three kids. I'm a mom of three kids. Um, you know, like she preaches female empowerment. I preach female empowerment. And so their relationship is based off of something that's not about wealth and, you know, celebrity. I mean, I think what's fascinating about Beyonce is that she doesn't share like much of her life at all like she posts like one instagram post like a year or something and so i don't know what people have to go on to be able to maintain that kind of relationship with her well her music you know we have her music whenever we want it but also even though beyonce doesn't share she's still like we're seeing her courtside at laker games we're seeing blue ivy behind stage at you know beyonce's latest show like we're seeing jay-z posting stuff and then we can sort of manufacture the rest of it i feel like there was so much information here that wasn't even part of like my original repertoire of questions but i'm so glad we covered them Yeah, no, me too. Yeah. And if any of this other stuff comes up, media effects or social media or any of that stuff, just let me know. I'm happy to to talk about it. Thank you, Kate. Okay. So that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you all so much for listening and I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. I'll see you next Wednesday. Bye. (laughs) 